This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Chapter 17 Oliver's destiny, continuing unpropitious, brings a great man to London to injure his reputation. It is the custom on the stage, in all good murderous melodramas, to present the tragic and the comic scenes in as regular alternation as the layers of red and white in a side of streaky bacon. The hero sinks upon his straw bed, weighed down by fetters and misfortunes. In the next scene, his faithful but unconscious squire regales the audience with a comic song. We behold, with throbbing bosoms, the heroine in the grasp of a proud and ruthless baron, her virtue and her life alike in danger, drawing forth her dagger to preserve the one at the cost of the other. And just as our expectations are wrought up to the highest pitch, a whistle is heard, and we are straightway transported to the great hall of the castle, where a grey-headed seneschal sings a funny chorus with a funnier body of vassals, who are free of all sorts of places, from church vaults to palaces, and roam about in company, caroling perpetually. Such changes appear absurd, but they are not so unnatural as they would seem at first sight. The transitions in real life from well-spread boards to deathbeds, and from mourning weeds to holiday garments, are not a whit less startling. Only there we are busy actors, instead of passive lookers-on, which makes a vast difference. The actors in the mimic life of the theatre are blind to violent transitions and abrupt impulses of passion or feeling, which, presented before the eyes of mere spectators, are at once condemned as outrageous and preposterous. As sudden shiftings of scene and rapid changes of time and place are not only sanctioned in books by long usage, but are by many considered as the great art of authorship, an author's skill in his craft being, by such critics, chiefly estimated with relation to the dilemmas in which he leaves his characters at the end of every chapter, this brief introduction to the present one may perhaps be deemed unnecessary. If so, let it be considered a delicate intimation on the part of the historian that he is going back to the town in which Oliver Twist was born, the reader taking it for granted that there are good and substantial reasons for making the journey, or he would not be invited to proceed upon such an expedition. Mr. Bumble emerged at early morning from the workhouse gate, and walked with portly carriage and commanding steps up the high street. He was in the full bloom and pride of beetlehood. His cocked hat and coat were dazzling in the morning sun. He clutched his cane with the vigorous tenacity of health and power. Mr. Bumble always carried his head high, but this morning it was higher than usual. There was an abstraction in his eye, an elevation in his air, which might have warned an observant stranger that thoughts were passing in the beetle's mind too great for utterance. Mr. Bumble stopped not to converse with the small shopkeepers and others who spoke to him deferentially as he passed along. He merely returned their salutations with a wave of his hand, and relaxed not in his dignified pace, until he reached the farm where Mrs. Mann tended the infant paupers with parochial care. "'Drat that beetle!' said Mrs. Mann, hearing the well-known shaking at the garden gate. "'If it isn't him with this time in the morning! Lock, Mr. Bumble! Only think of its being you! Well, dear me, it is a pleasure this is! Come into the parlour, sir, please!' The first sentence was addressed to Susan, and the exclamations of delight were uttered to Mr. Bumble, as the good lady unlocked the garden gate and showed him, with great attention and respect, into the house. "'Mrs. Mon,' said Mr. Bumble, 
not sitting upon or dropping himself into a seat, as any common jackanapes would, but letting himself gradually and slowly into a chair. Mrs. Mon, ma'am, good morning. Well, and good morning to you, sir, replied Mrs. Mann with many smiles, and hoping to find yourself well, sir. So, so, Mrs. Mon, replied the beetle, a parochial life is not a bed of roses, Mrs. Mon. Ah, that it isn't, Mr. Bumble, rejoined the lady and all the infant paupers might have chorused the rejoinder with great propriety if they had heard it. "'A parochial life, ma'am, continued Mr. Bumble, striking the table with his cane, "'is a life of wort and vexation and hardihood. But all public characters, as I must say, must suffer prosecution.' Mrs. Mann, not very well knowing what the beetle meant, raised her hands with a look of sympathy and sighed. "'Ah, well you may sigh, Mrs. Mann said the beetle. Finding she had done right, Mrs. Mann sighed again, evidently to the satisfaction of the public character, who, repressing a complacent smile by looking sternly at his cocked hat, said, "'Mrs. Mann, I am a-going to London.' "'Lock, Mr. Bumble!' cried Mrs. Mann, starting back. "'To London, Mum,' resumed the inflexible beetle. "'By coach! I and two paupers, Mrs. Mann. A legal action is a-coming on about a settlement.' and the board has appointed me, me, Mrs. Mann, to depose to the matter before the quarter sections at Clerkenwell. And I very much question, added Mr. Bumble, drawing himself up, whether the Clerkenwell sessions will not find themselves in the wrong box before they have done with me. Oh, you mustn't be too hard on them, sir, said Mrs. Mann coaxingly. The Clerkenwell sessions have brought it upon themselves, ma'am, replied Mr. Bumble. "'And if the Clerkenwell Sessions find they may come off rather worse than they expected, "'the Clerkenwell Sessions have only themselves to thank.' "'There was so much determination and depth of purpose "'about the menacing manner in which Mr. Bumble delivered himself of these words "'that Mrs. Mann appeared quite awed by them. "'At length,' she said, "'You're going by coach, sir. "'I thought it was always usual to send them papas in carts.' "'That's when they're ill, Mrs. Mann,' said the beetle. We put the sick paupers into open carts in the rainy weather, to prevent their taking cold. Oh, said Mrs. Mann. The opposition coach contracts for these two, and takes them cheap, said Mr. Bumble. They are both in a very low state, and we find it would come two pounds cheaper to move em than to bury em. That is, if we can throw em upon another parish, which I think we shall be able to do, if they don't die upon the road despite us. Ha, ha, ha! When Mr. Bumble had laughed a little while, his eyes again encountered the cocked hat, and he became grave. "'We are forgetting business, ma'am,' said the beetle. "'Here is your parochial stipend for the month.' Mr. Bumble produced some silver money rolled up in paper from his pocket-book, and requested a receipt, which Mrs. Mann wrote. "'It's very much blotted, sir,' said the farmer of infants. "'But it's formal enough, I dare say.' "'I thank you, Mr. Bumble, sir. I'm very much obliged to you, I'm sure.' Mr. Bumble nodded blandly in acknowledgment of Mrs. Mann's curtsy, and inquired how the children were. "'Bless their dear little hearts,' said Mrs. Mann with emotion. "'They're as well as can be, the dares. Of course, except the two that died last week, and little Dick.' "'Isn't that boy no better?' inquired Mr. Bumble. Mrs. Mann shook her head. He's an ill-conditioned, wishes, bad-disposed parochial child, that, 
said Mr. Bumble angrily. Where is he? I'll bring him to you in one minute, sir, replied Mrs. Mann. Here, you, Dick. After some calling, Dick was discovered. Having had his face put under the pump and dried upon Mrs. Mann's gown, he was led into the awful presence of Mr. Bumble, the beetle. The child was pale and thin. His cheeks were sunken, and his eyes large and bright. The scanty parish dress, the livery of his misery, hung loosely on his feeble body, and his young limbs had wasted away like those of an old man. Such was the little being who stood trembling beneath Mr. Bumble's glance, not daring to lift his eyes from the floor, and dreading even to hear the beetle's voice. "'Can't you look at the gentleman, you obstinate boy?' said Mrs. Mann. The child meekly raised his eyes and encountered those of Mr. Bumble. "'What's the matter with you, parochial Dick?' inquired Mr. Bumble, with well-timed jocularity. N "'Nothing, sir,' replied the child faintly. "'I should think not,' said Mrs. Mann, who had of course laughed very much at Mr. Bumble's humour. "'You want for nothing, I'm sure.' "'I should like,' faltered the child. "'Eh, hey, day interposed Mrs. Mann. "'I suppose you're going to say you do want for something now. "'Why, you little wretch!' "'Stop, Mrs. Mann, stop,' said the beetle, "'raising his hand with a show of authority. "'Like what, sir, eh?' "'I should like,' faltered the child, "'if somebody that can write "'would put a few words down for me on a piece of paper "'and fold it up and seal it and keep it for me.' "'after I am laid in the ground.' "'Why, what does the boy mean?' exclaimed Mr. Bumble, "'on whom the earnest manner and wan aspect of the child "'had made some impression, accustomed as he was to such things. "'What do you mean, sir?' "'I should like,' said the child, "'to leave my dear love to poor Oliver Twist, "'and to let him know how often I have sat by myself and cried.' to think of his wandering about in the dark nights with nobody to help him. And I should like to tell him, said the child, pressing his small hands together and speaking with great fervor, that I was glad to die when I was very young, for perhaps if I had lived to be a man and grown old, my little sister, who is in heaven, might forget me or be unlike me, and it would be so much happier if we were both children there together. Mr. Bumble surveyed the little speaker from head to foot with indescribable astonishment, and turning to his companion said, "'They're all in one story, Mrs. Mann. That audacious Oliver has demogalized them all.' "'I couldn't believe it, sir,' said Mrs. Mann, holding up her hands and looking malignantly at Dick. "'I never see such a hardened little wretch.' "'Take him away, ma'am,' said Mr. Bumble imperiously. This must be stated to the board, Mrs. Mann. I hope the gentleman will understand it isn't my fault, sir, said Mrs. Mann, whimpering pathetically. They shall understand that, ma'am. They shall be acquainted with the true state of the case, said Mr. Bumble. There, take him away. I can't bear the sight on him. Dick was immediately taken away and locked up in the coal cellar. Mr. Bumble shortly afterwards took himself off to prepare for his journey. At six o'clock next morning, Mr. Bumble, having exchanged his cocked hat for a round one, and encased his person in a blue greatcoat with a cape to it, took his place on the outside of the coach, 
accompanied by the criminals whose settlement was disputed, with whom, in due course of time, he arrived in London. He experienced no other crosses on the way than those which originated in the perverse behavior of the two paupers, who persisted in shivering and complaining of the cold, in a manner which, Mr. Bumble declared, caused his teeth to chatter in his head, and made him feel quite uncomfortable, although he had a greatcoat on. Having disposed of these evil-minded persons for the night, Mr. Bumble sat himself down in the house at which the coach stopped, and took a temperate dinner of steaks, oyster sauce, and porter. Putting a glass of hot gin and water on the chimney-piece, he drew his chair to the fire, and with sundry moral reflections on the too prevalent sin of discontent and complaining, composed himself to read the paper. The very first paragraph upon which Mr. Bumble's eye rested was the following advertisement. Five guineas reward, whereas a young boy named Oliver Twist absconded or was enticed on Thursday evening last from his home at Pentonville, and has not since been heard of. The above reward will be paid to any person who will give such information as will lead to the discovery of the said Oliver Twist, or tend to throw any light upon his previous history, in which the advertiser is, for many reasons, warmly interested. And then followed a full description of Oliver's dress, person, appearance, and disappearance, with the name and address of Mr. Brownlow at full length. Mr. Bumble opened his eyes, read the advertisement slowly and carefully, through several times and in something more than five minutes was on his way to Pentonville, having actually, in his excitement, left the glass of hot gin and water untasted. "'Is Mr. Brownlow at home?' inquired Mr. Bumble of the girl who opened the door. To this inquiry the girl returned the not uncommon but rather evasive reply of, "'I don't know. Where do you come from?' Mr. Bumble no sooner uttered Oliver's name in explanation of his errand than Mrs. Bedwin, who had been listening at the parlour door, hastened into the passage in a breathless state. "'Come in, come in,' said the old lady. "'I knew we should hear of him. Poor dear, I knew we should. I was certain of it. Bless his heart! I said so all along!' Having said this, the worthy old lady hurried back into the parlour again, and seating herself on a sofa, burst into tears. The girl, who was not quite so susceptible, had run upstairs meanwhile, and now returned with a request that Mr. Bumble would follow her immediately, which he did. He was shown into the little back study, where sat Mr. Brownlow and his friend Mr. Grimwig, with decanters and glasses before them. The latter gentleman at once burst into the exclamation, "'A beetle! A parish beetle, or I'll eat my hat!' "'Pray, don't interrupt just now,' said Mr. Brownlow. "'Take a seat, will you?' Mr. Bumble sat himself down, quite confounded by the oddity of Mr. Grimwig's manner. Mr. Brownlow moved the lamp so as to obtain an uninterrupted view of the beetle's countenance, and said, with a little impatience, "'Now, sir, you come in consequence of having seen the advertisement?' "'Yes, sir,' said Mr. Bumble. "'And you are a beetle, are you not?' inquired Mr. Grimwig. "'I am a parochial beetle, gentlemen,' rejoined Mr. Bumble proudly. "'Of course,' observed Mr. Grimwig, aside to his friend. "'I knew he was a beetle all over.' Mr. Brownlow gently shook his head to impose silence on his friend, and resumed, "'Do you know where this poor boy is now?' "'No more than nobody,' replied Mr. Bumble. "'Well, what do you know of him?' inquired the old gentleman. "'Speak out, my friend. If you have anything to say, what do you know of him?' 
"'You don't happen to know any good of him, do you?' said Mr. Grimwig, caustically, after an attentive perusal of Mr. Bumble's features. Mr. Bumble, catching at the inquiry very quickly, shook his head with portentous solemnity. "'You see?' said Mr. Grimwig, looking triumphantly at Mr. Brownlow. Mr. Brownlow looked apprehensively at Mr. Bumble's pursed-up countenance, and requested him to communicate what he knew regarding Oliver in as few words as possible. Mr. Bumble put down his hat, unbuttoned his coat, folded his arms, inclined his head in a retrospective manner, and, after a few moments' reflection, commenced his story. It would be tedious if given in the Beatles' words, occupying as it did some twenty minutes in the telling, but the sum and substance of it was that Oliver was a foundling, born of low and vicious parents, that he had, from his birth, displayed no better qualities than treachery, ingratitude, and malice, that he had terminated his brief career in the place of his birth by making a sanguinary and cowardly attack on an unoffending lad, and running away in the night-time from his master's house. In proof of his really being the person he re represented himself, Mr. Bumble laid upon the table the papers he had brought to town. Folding his arms again, he then awaited Mr. Brownlow's observations. "'I fear it is all too true,' said the old gentleman sorrowfully, after looking over the papers. "'This is not much for your intelligence, but I would gladly have given you treble the money if it had been favourable to the boy. It is not improbable,' that if Mr. Bumble had been possessed of this information at an earlier period of the interview, he might have imparted a very different colouring to his little history. It was too late to do it now, however, so he shook his head gravely and, pocketing the five guineas, withdrew. Mr. Brownlow paced the room to and fro for some minutes, evidently so much disturbed by the beetle's tale that even Mr. Grimwig forbore to vex him further. At length he stopped and rang the bell violently. "'Mrs. Bedwin,' said Mr. Brownlow, when the housekeeper appeared, "'that boy Oliver is an impostor.' "'It can't be, sir! It cannot be!' said the old lady energetically. "'I tell you he is,' retorted the old gentleman. "'What do you mean by can't be? "'We have just heard a full account of him from his birth, "'and he has been a thorough-paced little villain all his life.' "'I never will believe it, sir,' replied the old lady firmly. Never. You old women never believe anything but quack doctors and lying story-books, growled Mr. Grimwig. I knew it all along. Why didn't you take my advice in the beginning? You would, if he hadn't had a fever. I suppose, eh? He was interesting, wasn't he? Interesting. Bah! And Mr. Grimwig poked the fire with a flourish. He was a dear, grateful, gentle child, sir retorted Mrs. Bedwin indignantly. I know what children are, sir, and I have done these forty years, and people can't say the same, shouldn't say anything about them. That's my opinion. This was a hard hit at Mr. Grimwig, who was a bachelor. As it extorted nothing from that gentleman but a smile, the old lady tossed her head and smoothed down her apron preparatory to another speech, when she was stopped by Mr. Brownlow. Silence! said the old gentleman, feigning an anger he was far from feeling. Never let me hear the boy's name again. I rang to tell you that. Never. Never on any pretense, mind. You may leave the room, Mrs. Bedwin. Remember, I am in earnest. 
There were sad hearts at Mr. Brownlow's that night. Oliver's heart sank within him when he thought of his good, kind friends. It was well for him that he could not know what they had heard, or it might have broken outright. End of chapter 17